Don't we all just want Christmas to pay off? Man, what a harsh question. That one just gets right to the heart of the matter. Don't we all just want Christmas to pay off? And that's a great quote because it's just so honest. It's not holding anything back. And when I showed this video to Christina earlier in the week, her reaction, she, she thought I was crazy. She said, uh, wow, you know, that, that's really depressing. Is that really how you want to start off the Christmas season? And yeah, it is, it is depressing. I, I agree. It's depressing for me. Uh, and in a way, I guess, I, I, I hope you find it depressing too. Um, not because uh, I want you to be depressed, but because A, um, I guess it tells me that you're in touch with reality. And B, because this is one of the questions that the world is asking about Christmas. Don't we all just want Christmas to pay off. Don't we do this because we want something in return? And the scriptures tell us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And I I think that this video maybe helps us gain some perspective. It at least tells us one of the questions that the world is asking. Because there's not a lot of hope in Christmas when you make it about the wrong thing. There's not a lot of hope in Christmas when you make it about getting stuff. We all love to get stuff, don't we? Every year we come up with wish lists and Christmas lists and this and that of stuff that we want. There's not a lot of hope in Christmas when you make it about uh, being good for goodness sake. The world doesn't need more moralistic gobbledygook. There's not a lot of hope in Christmas when we make it about working extra hours at the office or wherever you might work, so that we can buy our kids the best toys in the world in that particular year, which they'll either outgrow or just be sick of within probably a couple months, at least before next Christmas for sure. But let's just be honest and forthright. There's not a lot of hope in Christmas when you make it about anything in the world other than Jesus. Jesus is... The reason for the season. And that reason is a really, really good reason. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be about remembering and celebrating the incarnation, the time in history when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on flesh and became a man. And it's so easy for us to lose perspective on that. It's so easy for us to be distracted and, and, and just look away from that because we get busy, we get distracted and Uh, lose focus because of all this other stuff that we make Christmas about. And yeah, when you make it about all this other stuff, it does just seem like, wow, this is really just pointless. We're all just trying to get a payoff here. No, Christmas is about remembering that God declared war on sin. It's about remembering that God declared war on sin. He saw us in our sin. He saw that we were completely hopeless on our own. He saw that we were only deserving of wrath and condemnation. Okay, let's get done with the, dirt, with the depressing part, and then let's move on to the positive part. He loved us enough to do something about it. He loved us enough to send, the, to send His Son to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die. And I could go on and on and on with all the reasons that Jesus came to dwell among us as one of us in flesh. In fact, that's exactly what I plan on doing, possibly for the next few years. You know, every Christmas... 
Every pastor will tell you, you know, they're trying to come up with something original because you don't want to just preach the same text year after year after year. And I, I started thinking, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons that Jesus came to earth. What about doing a series on that? And I, I started, you know, researching that, you know, re, looking at reasons that Jesus became a man. And I was like, wow, that's a huge list. I could probably preach on this for the next four years around Christmas time. So maybe I'll do that. I don't know. But the Bible gives us at least... 30 distinct reasons, and I, I've tried to narrow that down to about 20 by, uh, by grouping various ones that are kind of similar together. But that's a lot of good reasons, either way. Good reasons for Jesus to be born. There's a story of a man who had a passion for collecting exquisite artwork, and he raised his son to love and to, to have a deep appreciation for art as well. They were proud owners of several uh, priceless original works of art from throughout history, works by Picasso, Van Gogh, Da Vinci, Monet, and, and many others. And the estate, as you might guess, was worth an enormous amount of money. The day came, however, when the nation went to war, and the man's son went to join his countrymen on the battlefield. And only a few months later, the man, the father received a telegram from the army informing him that his beloved son had been killed in battle while attempting to carry a wounded soldier to the closest medic. Two years later, he heard a knock on his door on Christmas morning, and he answered it. He opened the door to find a young man in an army uniform with a nicely wrapped gift in his hand. The soldier introduced himself to the man, saying, I was close friends with your son, And I'm forever indebted to him as I'm the man that he was saving when he was killed. May I come in for a moment? I have something that I would like to share with you. And so as the two men came inside and sat down, the soldier explained that he and the man's son had engaged in numerous conversations about art and that the soldier himself was also an artist. And so he said to the man, please open the gift. And as the father unwrapped the gift a painted portrait of his deceased son was revealed. And while it wasn't necessarily the type of painting that critics and art collectors would go crazy about or draw high praise about, the painting was extremely accurate and very good, and it captured his son's personality in a way that no other picture that he had did. But within a few months, the man became very sick, and he passed away. And with no family to pass his estate off to, it was determined that the man's estate would be auctioned off with proceeds going to charity. And when the day for the auction arrived, art critics and art collectors from around the world gathered at his house, gathered, lining up in front of the house in anticipation for the opportunity to get their hands on some of this incredibly valuable artwork. And the house was just packed with bidders. Well, the auction started with a piece that none of the critics and none of the collectors who were there had known about, had known would be a part of the auction. It was the painting of the man's son. And as the auctioneer asked for an opening bid, the room fell completely silent. Who will start the bidding at $100, he called out. And nobody responded. After several minutes of silence, Someone called out from the back of the room, nobody wants this painting of the man's son. 
Can we move on to the more important paintings? Voices suddenly filled the room in agreement, and the auctioneer responded, The man's will clearly states that until the painting of his son is sold, the auction cannot continue. Now who wants a lovely painting of this man's son? Finally, an old friend of the man came forward and said, I knew the man, I knew his son, I'll, I'll, pay, I'll bid the, the $100 minimum. I have a bid for $100, yelled the auctioneer. Do I hear 125 Do I hear 120 Do I hear 110 Do I hear anything over 100 Another long silence. And so the auctioneer finally called out, going once, going twice, sold. And the gavel fell, and cheers filled the room for a moment, but came to a screeching halt when the auctioneer announced, this concludes today's auction. Someone in the back angrily shouted, what do you mean that's it? What do you mean that this concludes the auction? We didn't come here for the painting of this old man's son. We came here for all this other stuff. What about all these other paintings? There are millions upon millions of dollars of artwork in this house. What's going on? The auctioneer replied, it's simple. According to the will of the father, whoever takes the son gets it all. And that's what Christmas is really all about, isn't it? That's what it's about. It's about remembering Jesus. It's about the good news, the gospel, that whoever takes the Son gets it all. All what? (laughs) All 30-plus reasons that Jesus took on flesh to become just like every single one of us, to be tempted like we were, to live the life of a human being, and yet to live without sin. And it starts with one very simple thing. He came to bring eternal life. That's where the all starts, with eternal life. And I say it's it's simple because it it just sounds so plain. The sentence, he came to bring eternal life. Man, that's that's really, there's no, uh, you know, big theological terms in there. You know, there's nothing in there that would, you know, that's like a tongue twister. It's just short and, and succinct. It's simple in that sense, and yet... It's not so simple in the sense that eternal life would never have been within our grasp if Jesus hadn't been the one to bring it to us. The Apostle John puts it this way for us in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the, the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is just clear as day. I mean, it's a black and white proposition. I don't know how anybody can honestly examine this text and say, okay, you know, I think God lets people in no matter what, no matter, you know, what they believe in, no matter how much they hate Jesus. Yeah, this is black and white, and it's as black and white as any proposition I've ever heard. If you have the Son, then you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have eternal life. Now, physically speaking, if you don't have life, what do you have? You have death. That's the only other option. If you're not alive, you are dead. And there aren't degrees of deadness. You are either 
dead or you are alive. And likewise, the person who is not spiritually alive in Christ is spiritually dead. There are no degrees of being dead. There's just dead. It's all or it's nothing either way. Don't we all just want Christmas to pay off? No, not really. Not, not all of us, hopefully, but it's just not what it's supposed to be about. That's not what it has to be about. It's about Jesus bringing the gift of eternal life to a world that otherwise would have had nothing in it except death. It just would have been filled with death. One of the earliest ways that the church gave a picture of this to the world was to invent this thing we call a hospital. Prior to Christians inventing hospitals or inventing just the concept of a hospital, doctors had private practices and they were extremely expensive and they were very difficult for the average person to get help from. And the result of that was people died. Often unnecessarily, often prematurely. And it was Christians who had this idea of building hospitals where anyone and everyone could be cared for, could have a chance at life. Ideally, it was a place where people could experience life, longer life, instead of death. In a world without Jesus, maybe there would be no hospitals. In a world without Jesus, Matthew would have remained dead in his sin. He would have been a tax collector who extorted money from people for the rest of his life. In a world without Jesus, Peter, James, and John would never have been heard of. They'd just go down in history as these obscure characters that we'd never hear of. There'd be no books about them. They just would have been fishermen who did what fishermen do. In a world without Jesus, the man who had been possessed by the demons called Legion would never have become a missionary to his hometown. He would have remained possessed for the rest of his life. In a world without Jesus, the woman at the well would have gone through her life feeling like God had absolutely no interest in her and never loved her because of her sin. In a world without Jesus, you and I wouldn't have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. In a world without Jesus, you and I, just like all these other people, would have died in our sins. This is why we sing songs about Emmanuel at Christmas. The word literally means God with us. He walked the earth 2,000 years ago and he was with his disciples then and he still walks with his people today. He is still Emmanuel. And there's no other religion in the entire world that makes that claim about their God or their deity or their idol. No other religion claims that God took on flesh to to walk with them and continues to walk with his people thousands of years later. One of the things I do to just to help make ends meet is I go to a place where I can buy things to, to resell online. Often I buy clothes to sell online. In fact, this shirt, it's a Nordstrom shirt, uh, was bought at this place. It's a perfectly good shirt. Uh, the clothes aren't neatly stacked. Uh, they aren't hung up nicely to display them. They're not even folded. Uh, They're just kind of thrown in these bins, and this place is their last stop before everything goes off to the dump or the landfill. And I was, as I was there this this past week, um, I was was buying clothes. I, I had something of an epiphany. 
uh, just one of those moments where something hits me and I, I get like an illustration, uh, you know, wow, that, that, that really makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I saw these dirty clothes that were seen as worthless by somebody else. That's why their, you know, their next stop is the dump. And so they were, just, they were just thrown away because somebody else saw these things as worthless. And by taking these clothes out and, and buying them, I'm giving them new life in a sense. And it's amazing how much some of them are, are worth, but only to the right person. Some of them still, you know, have their original price tags on them. I mean, this isn't junk. They're valuable to the right person. And when I thought about how all of this worked, you know, I, I realized that that's exactly what God does with us too. He saves us from death by giving us life because in his eyes, we are not just a bunch of sinners. We're not just uh, these people who are always causing trouble. We are a prized possession for him. We're a prized possession in his eyes. If you go through Genesis, you know, the days of Genesis, God says it was good. God says it was good. God says it was good through all these days. Then you get to the day that he invents man, and he says, and it was very good. It was very good. We're a prized possession to God. We have more value value to him than we might have realized. And Jesus is the proof of that love. God sent his son because we have so much value in his eyes that he did something about our condition. Imagine for just a moment what a world without life would look like. I guess it would look like the moon. You know, there's no life on the moon. You can can even talk with the conspiracy theorists, you know. um, There is really no evidence for life on the moon. Uh, But there would be no joy right? Uh, There's no life, there's no joy, but there's absolutely no hope because there's no potential. There's no room for improvement because life doesn't just naturally spring up from non-life. Life Life doesn't come out of rocks. Uh, That's just, that's basic science. It's basic logic. There'd be no chance for improvement of the conditions of this planet. It would be bleak and hopeless. And maybe now you're starting to get a grasp on the way that the world sees Christmas, the way that Christmas is when you take Jesus out of the picture. They know that Christmas is supposed to give them this warm, fuzzy feeling. It's supposed to give them a sense of joy. It's supposed to give them a sense of hope. But deep inside, there's this emptiness. There's this void. They know that their experience and their perception of Christmas is being driven by selfishness. It's being driven by selfish motives and sinful tendencies. Everybody knows that we are surrounded by physical death. These trees that are alive will someday die. The earth and all of creation is in constant decay. That's what we call the second law of thermodynamics. Scientists know it too. We are constantly in a state of decay. And we, as people, are no exception. We all know that there is nothing in the world that can prevent natural decay and corruption from causing death eventually. Jesus, however, was sent into the world as a remedy for our sinful flesh. He lived a perfect life. His, sin, his flesh was never corrupted by sin. And thus he alone qualified for standing in the place of sinners to ransom us from spiritual death. He had to impart his righteousness to us while imparting our own sinfulness to himself. He came to give us life every day, every single day. He said this in John 
Chapter 5, verses 53 and 54. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink of His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is one of those passages that has caused a great amount of division, a great amount of confusion uh, about throughout the ages. But a lot of that confusion would be put to rest if you just look at the context as a whole. The disciples are, are, are shocked and confused, but, but Jesus clarifies for them, saying it's the Spirit who gives life. In other words, it's not drinking my literal flesh and blood that gives you life. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. He just said, if you, you have to eat my flesh. And here he says, the flesh is no help at all. So it's pretty obvious. He's speaking metaphorically. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's verse 63. Earlier on in the passage, Jesus clearly says, whoever believes has eternal life. So eternal life isn't from literally eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. Rather, that's a metaphor for believing. And so thus we know Jesus is speaking metaphorically. He isn't saying that the elements of communion mystically transfigure and become his literal flesh and blood when we eat them. He's simply saying that just like bread and wine give your body physical nourishment, give your body physical life, Jesus gives spiritual life, and he does that through our faith. He provides us with spiritual sustenance. As Christian people... Friends, we, we can't look at Jesus as someone we worship only on Sunday and, and absolutely not somebody that we just worship on Christmas and Easter. We have to look at Jesus as someone that we worship every day. Just like you couldn't just get away with eating you know, two meals a year, Christmas and Easter, and you couldn't get away with even eating one meal a week on Sunday mornings. We have to see Jesus as the spiritual nourishment that we need every day. When he said he came to bring life, that's what he's talking about. He is something that we go to daily. Daily. And so we have to learn to feast on Jesus daily, so to speak. The question is, how do we do that? I'd say that it starts by recognizing that Jesus, and only Jesus, can meet our deepest needs. Only He can meet our deepest needs. He alone can give us true spiritual nourishment. And by acknowledging just that much and letting that truth sink into our... uh, And by acknowledging this much, we at least start to develop an appetite for Him. As, As humans, we're psychologically always looking for something to satisfy us. For some, they turn to money. For some... They turn to sex. For some, they turn to food. For some, they turn to work. None of these things, none of these things will ultimately satisfy our deepest needs and desires. And when we regularly turn our hearts to Jesus, feasting on him daily, so to speak, we start to realize that nothing else is going to satisfy us. And once we realize that nothing else is going to satisfy us, Why would we turn our hearts to anything or anyone other than Christ himself? 
The more we realize it, the more this, this truth sinks into our hearts, the less appeal anyone or anything will have for us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That's Jesus, by the way, that, and it's, it's his word. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the Lord Jesus is amazingly good. So relying on him for our spiritual nourishment starts with realizing that only he can satisfy us. Only he can satisfy our deepest longings and needs. And therefore, we develop something of a proverbial appetite for him. Secondly, we have to learn to meditate on him. I'm not talking about yoga and, you know, Eastern religion type of meditation where you, you know, chant hum, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, exactly, Sam. Uh, I'm talking about thinking about Jesus. Thinking about what has he taught you? What have you learned recently? What have you learned recently from him? What do you know about him from his word? And how does that factor into your daily life? See, we have to learn to to meditate, to reflect on his words, on his works, uh, his teachings. Or how about just reflecting on his many names? The prophet Isaiah said, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That's a good place to start if you want to start meditating on the names of Jesus. What does each name mean? How does each name apply to you? How does each name apply to your current situation in life? This simple exercise will help anyone realize how Jesus is able to meet the various needs of different aspects of their life. He meets them all. He meets them all. Third, learn to delight in him above everything else. Don't just practice the spiritual disciplines because, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a sucker for self-inflicted pain and, and punishment or anything like that. Uh, you just love the, the discipline of it and, you know, the, uh, the solemnness of it. Don't even practice the spiritual disciplines because you're fearing the wrath of God. That's just the wrong reason to do it. Learn to do it because you love it. Learn to do it because you love him. Jesus shouldn't just be the spiritual food that you need. He is. But he should also be the spiritual nourishment that you crave more and more and more of. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 73, verses 25 and 26, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, when I read this, I I get a, a certain impression of whoever wrote this. I get the impression that he didn't just see God as someone he had to go to. He saw God as someone he wanted to go to, as someone that he just craved more and more of. This doesn't strike me as the type of person who would wake up on Sunday mornings and say, well... Guess I better get this church thing out of the way. You know, I guess I better get up. Oh, man, I guess I'll, I'll just DVR the football game. And oh, I, I hate watching recorded football games. No, this guy seems like the type of person who would say, oh, I just can't wait. 
I just can't wait to go and worship the Lord with his children. So first, recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone meets our deepest needs. Secondly, meditate on his life. Meditate on his ministry. Meditate on his word. Third, learn to delight in him above everything else. And fourth, repeat the cycle. Feed upon him by by looking to him intentionally and deliberately turning your heart to him. Relying on him regularly, just like you would uh, need breakfast to start your day off. Read a Bible passage to start your day off, too. Rely on him daily. Just like our bodies need physical nourishment every day, how much more do you think we need spiritual nourishment every day? As a pastor, I, I see a lot of people who have a lot of spiritual vitality. It's usually pretty obvious. And I see people who have little spiritual vitality. And the difference really does seem to boil down to whether or not a person is regularly, daily seeking Jesus and making him their top priority every single day. If you've ever read through the creeds and confessions of the church through the ages, uh, there's a great exercise. Man, those things are, are amazing. Some of them are a little bit difficult to understand. You guys have probably heard of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was written because there were heretics saying that Jesus was not the Son of God. He was an angel or he was the highest uh, created being, but he wasn't fully God. And so they wrote the Nicene Creed in response to that to clarify their position. See, these these creeds and confessions were always written by a multitude of Christians who would gather seeking to to write a a statement or a document which clarified their position on a particular doctrine or or doctrines. And one of those, uh, one of the great confessions from throughout the ages is the Belgic Confession which uh, was one of, the, one of the great confessions written in the 16th century. That was in the, you know, right at the heart of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and all those guys. And it included a clarification on the Protestant interpretation of this passage here in John, where Jesus was, was talking about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. And so th- this offers a, a, a clarification of the Protestant position against the Roman Catholic understanding. And they write this. This is, this is kind of interesting. And this is our position. He said, quote, or they said, quote, For the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, he hath sent a living bread which descended from heaven, namely Jesus Christ, who nourishes and strengthens the spiritual life of believers when they eat him. That is to say, when they apply and receive him by faith in the Spirit. And they go on to say, What is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. But... The manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit, through faith. End quote. In Christ, we receive life. And that's something that we have got to remember at Christmas. In Christ, our spiritual lives are nourished. In Christ, our spiritual lives are sustained. And this is one of the many things, one of the many, many things, that Christmas is really all about. This Christmas season, one of the sayings of Jesus that you might want to reflect on regularly is found in the book of Acts. And I think it adds some clarity to the whole 
consumer mindset that we have in Western culture that's reflected in, in the video that we, that we watched before the sermon. Uh, it's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where Jesus is, is quoted as saying, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Man, that's, that's really contrary to human nature, isn't it? Don't we all just want Christmas to pay off? No. No, not, not if our hearts are right. Not, not, if, not if our mind is right. Not, not if, if our attitude is correct. Because the Lord himself has told us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that doesn't sound like something someone would say if they're seeking a payoff. That sounds like something that someone would say when they realize how abundantly they've been blessed by God. And thus their desire is to bless others. It sounds like something that someone who's really a good and faithful steward with their resources would say. Whether that's finances, whether that's time, whether that's possessions, what have you. It sounds like something a person would say when they start to understand what incredible joy it gave God to bring life, eternal life, to a world in which death would otherwise prevail. So this Christmas season, I want to start us off by just encouraging us to stay focused on what matters. To stay focused on what the reason for the season really is. Don't let yourself get distracted with all the busy stuff that we've surrounded the Christmas season with. Keep yourself focused on Jesus. And you'll keep yourself nourished by him. And you'll grow. You need food to grow, right? You won't grow physically if you don't eat. You won't grow spiritually if you don't receive spiritual nourishment either. And when you find yourself being nourished by him, by seeking him every day, keeping your focus on him, I'm convinced that Christmas will seem a lot more meaningful. And my hope and my prayer is that when the world sees that Christmas really does mean something, other, it's not selfish, ideally, for us. When the world sees that Christmas really does mean something to us, and that it's not just tradition, and it's not just about you know, personal or, or material gain, and it's not just about being good for goodness sake, it's not about all the stuff that keeps us busy, Maybe the world will notice. And maybe even they too will want to taste and see that the Lord is good. So stay focused on Jesus because he's the reason for the season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we enter the Christmas season, Lord, it's so easy for us to get pulled this way and that tossed this way and that like we're in a in the ocean in a storm lord i pray that you would teach us to focus on you teach us lord to to seek spiritual nourishment from you not just on sunday mornings not just once or twice a week but lord that we would come to you every day and find spiritual nourishment from you that we would grow in you in order that we would glorify you. Lord, thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for your love. 
Thank you for the life that you give us. Help us to grow, Lord, by seeking you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer. Take me deeper